0: On this Easter Sunday, as we celebrate Christ's resurrection, I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 16. Here at North Holland Reformed Church, we have been following the lectionary through the Gospel of Mark since Advent, since December, Christmas time, when we celebrate Jesus' birth. And we follow Jesus in his life and in his ministry. And now today we come to Mark chapter 16, the story of Christ's resurrection. If this hadn't happened, if Mark 15 was the end of the story, if there was no Mark chapter 16, if there was no resurrection, we would not be here. We would not be here if this had not happened. Because there would be no church to gather in. There would be no Christians with which to have fellowship because there would be no Christians at all. As Christians, we serve a risen Savior. This is the cornerstone of what we believe. So as you hear these words from Mark chapter 16, remember, if this hadn't happened... We would not be here. Where would we put our hope, our faith, our trust? I honestly don't know. But thanks be to God that Mark chapter 16 is the end of this gospel. Your Bibles will also note that the second half or two-thirds, not very good with fractions, may or may not have been in some of the earlier manuscripts, but it is in the canon, the canon of Scripture today. So we're going to read the whole chapter. Of Mark 16, but before we do so, let's pray for God's blessing upon his word. Holy and loving Father, may your word be our rule, your Holy Spirit, our teacher, and the glory of the risen Christ, our single concern. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified He has risen, he is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go, tell his disciples, and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone, because they were afraid When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, Go into all the world And preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I pointed to the moon and they stared at my finger. I pointed to the moon and they stared at my finger. This is an old African proverb. And of the many ways you could apply it, one of the ways I'd like us to think about that today is the ways that analogies fall short. For someone to be pointing at the moon, imagine a full, bright, and beautiful moon, to be pointing towards it, to direct people's attention towards something great and beautiful. And the people are distracted by staring at the finger of the person who's pointing, not to the thing which they are pointing to. I pointed to the moon, and they stared at my finger. It's so foolish, right? I mean... It's just dumb. The only animal I can think of that does that is a house cat. You point at something and they stare at your finger because they don't know any better. But sometimes we don't know any better either. Analogies are always meant to point to something, to help explain a meaning of something greater than themselves. But sometimes we forget that the analogy is just a small piece of the greater whole to which it is pointing. And we get so fixed on the analogy that we forget to stare at what's being pointed to. Now, I really like analogies and story. If you're a regular here, you know that probably 95% of my sermons have some story or analogy, and probably about 85% of them start with it. So I'm going to give you an analogy today. But then I'm going to do what's called, in rhetoric, analogy trashing, where you give an analogy and then you point out the ways in which it simply doesn't work because it's not big enough. And then we'll move on a little bit further and see the ways in which all of us get to point towards Jesus in our own analogous way. So now you know my game plan. Here's the analogy. The rabbit's out of the hat, so you already know this is pointing towards something, but it's not good enough. It's not big enough. Caitlin's, my wife Caitlin's grandfather, uh, spent a lot of time on the road when he was working, and he would have to eventually live in those harsh climates of Florida and South Carolina. Oh, pity on him. But for a while, he got to live in the other promised land uh, known as Northwest Iowa and South Dakota. And once upon a time, making a long road trip into that frozen tundra of southern Canada that we call North Dakota, it was cold, inhospitably, obnoxiously cold, the kind of cold that only happens here if the lake is completely frozen over. And Grandpa Jerry was at a hotel one night, and the temperatures plummeted to the point where people's cars wouldn't even start. Yeah, that kind of cold. And he got up in the morning, went downstairs, and a few other businessmen who had been stranded at the hotel with him went out to try to start their cars. Nice cars, mind you. And none of them would start. And Grandpa Jerry thought, well, might as well try. And he grabbed his keys and walked for the door. And a man with a much nicer car than his told him, oh, pfft. Your Taurus doesn't even stand a chance. My car wouldn't even start. Now, for you GM fans, you're already finding a a flaw with this analogy, but bear with me. This isn't your story. That's not actually the flaw we're talking about. And I don't think it's a flaw at all, thank you very much. So Grandpa Jerry went out to his Taurus, and he got in the car, put the key in the ignition, he turned, and click. Nothing. Well, of course, but he had to try, right? But then something inside him said, try it again. So he put the key back in and turned. And... Because that's what toruses sound like. <laughs> the car started. The battery that they thought would have not had enough power, the battery which was essentially dead, Managed to start that car in obnoxiously cold temperatures. That which was thought to be dead turned out to be alive. Now, there's an analogy simple, straightforward. Something that we thought was dead was alive. Sounds a lot like Easter Sunday when the women went to the tomb expecting to find Jesus' body, expecting to find their Savior, their teacher, their Lord, their friend, expecting to find him dead, and yet he was not there because he is alive, he is risen. As the angel told them, he is not here. All of a sudden, a car battery just doesn't have enough juice for an analogy. Analogies fall short because we know exactly how a battery works. And some of you know more exactly than others. And by show of hands, how many of you know how to jump a car battery? One more reason to love being here. Someone can always help you out. And some of you are already thinking... Well, a Taurus is a much simpler car, so probably there's fewer electronics that the battery had to start. Or maybe the battery was newer than the other batteries in the other cars. There's factors that we can pick out to know that this wasn't really a miracle by any means. It was a cold day, and a battery did what it's meant to do, and the car started. It's not actually a miracle at all. It's just... Good luck or good providence, if you will. There's lots of analogies that we try to use to point us towards the cross, towards the resurrection. We think about the season of spring where things have been dead and cold and dormant and yet there is new life. There is flowers. There's green once again. Death to life. Except the plants aren't dead. They're merely dormant they're expecting for the sun to warm them and that they'll start all over again once again the analogy falls short because a plant's dormancy is not the same as human necrosis three days in the tomb Jesus was dead not kind of dead not dormant not just a cold day although his body physically would have been cold, for he was dead. There's no analogy which fully captures the miracle of death to life. All that analogies can do is point. And all that we can do is remember to look at what is being pointed towards and to not get caught staring at fingers that are pointing towards it. Things that we say are dead are not. Car batteries can be jumped. Warm, cold ground can be warmed by the sun. Even dead sermons can be revived by a well-placed joke. But none of those are miracles. Well, even humor, we know how that works. It operates on principles of cognitive incongruence. And all of a sudden, you think one thing is said, but then something else is said, and it's a disruption in your train of thought. And then once you realize the train of thought and how we got from point A to point B and back to point A, that's where you laugh, because the humor clicked. It made sense. Even humor is not funny if you can explain it. None of these analogies are full enough or big enough. The resurrection of Christ after three days is the fullest and greatest miracle that we could imagine. The resurrection of someone who has been dead after three days, it breaks physics and biology and chemistry. It doesn't work. It is not supposed to happen. Things that are dead are supposed to stay dead if they are truly dead. And yet, In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the laws of the world that we understand and how they're governed were broken. For Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. There was the resurrection. Jesus was crucified, and he died, and he was buried. Not metaphorically or analogously, but dead. And then three days later, he wasn't dead anymore. He is not here. He has risen. It's no wonder that the women who went to the tomb were frightened and and bewildered. Even for all the ways in which Jesus told them this was going to happen, it just doesn't make sense. They don't even have the capacity to explain in any way other than by sharing what they said. There's no way for them to come up with an analogy of what it's like. Because the resurrection simply is. It would be like if I, as a young child, on a Saturday morning would have run to my parents and said, Mom, Dad, the firewood has split and stacked itself in neat columns in the lean-to. It's all done. They would not believe me. But they would go and see for themselves and confirm that it had not happened. And Jesus' disciples go to his tomb And they see that he is not there. But it still just doesn't make sense to them. How could it be that he who was dead, we saw him with our own eyes. We saw him dead and buried. How could he be alive? And so all of the conspiracy theories that surround it, well, maybe someone just moved his body. But Jesus kept appearing to people. To confirm for them what truly is. What can't be fully captured by analogy, Jesus did in present. Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. She went and told them, and they did not believe it. And then later in verse 12, Jesus appeared to two of them while they were in the country. This is the Emmaus Road. And they returned and reported it to the rest. But they didn't believe them either because it just doesn't make sense. If analogy is like pointing at the moon, they're not even sure how to point to it. They're not sure how to put this in words other than to say, We were told that he is risen and that he is not here. Word spreads. Wouldn't it be a sad ending to Mark's gospel if it really ended with verse 8 where they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid? That they couldn't find the courage to tell the inexplicable. But in the very next verse, Jesus appeared, and people are telling others that he has risen. But twice in a row, they did not believe them. But then finally, Jesus appears to the eleven, In person and in present. And he rebukes them for not believing. And I also wonder if despite maybe some of Jesus' frustration, because he told them this was going to happen, I think he also understood. Because this was beyond their comprehension. So he rebuked them, but then he gave them these instructions. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. And whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. Jesus commands his disciples to go, to baptize, and to spread the good news, to tell of what happened, that the cross is empty, the grave is empty. He has risen. He has risen indeed. And he tells them about signs, signs that will accompany them. I wonder if part of the reason that there's some hesitance about this part of Mark's Mark's gospel is because of some of the weird stuff that he tells them about the signs that will accompany them. I'm mostly thinking about the snake handling bit. I really don't like snakes. And I've admitted this before, and I'm okay with telling you I'm afraid, because Indiana Jones is afraid of snakes. And I'm from Indiana. But it's weird, isn't it? I mean, does this mean that people are supposed to go out and do that? I'm really glad that that's not the case because I really wouldn't want to. This doesn't mean that you go out and do these things to prove to other people that Jesus has risen. These are the signs that accompany those who believe. These are the analogies. These are the fingers which are pointing towards the resurrection. These are the small miracles that point to the great miracle of the empty cross, of the empty grave, of the risen Christ who ascended to sit at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. These are the signs, these are the little miracles, small m, that point to the miracle. Capital M, all caps, bold underlined. These are the signs that will accompany them. What signs do we use to point people towards Jesus? First and foremost, we simply tell it like it is. We proclaim the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for our sins and that he rose again to give us new life. We simply say it. And analogies and signs will help fill in, help bring some light to it. But the best that we can do is point. To point and tell. And show by the pointing What we believe. What signs accompany us? What kind of signs did Jesus say would be happening? And what kind of signs did Jesus himself perform to show people a picture of the kingdom? The hungry are fed, the naked are clothed, houses are built for those who are homeless, the destitute are cared for the captives are released the prisoners set free those who oppress who are oppressed find relief from their oppression these are the big signs of the kingdom but they always are pointing towards something bigger towards Christ who is the king sometimes these signs seem almost too big we think how can we take part in these what about your own story view your life With the lens with which God views your life. And I guarantee you, you will find ways in which your story points towards Christ if you look for it. That which is dead has found new life, that which is dormant or cold has found new vigor. What about those who have grieved a loss and have found comfort? What about those who struggle with anxiety and have found here and there little glimpses of peace? What about those who have struggled with depression and have found new energy and new reinvigoration for life once again? What about those who have suffered abuse and have been able to cast aside the shame and move forward living in their identity of who Christ has called them to be. These are all small pieces of how our lives can point towards Jesus. What about the kind word of encouragement that is given for those who are struggling, pointing towards Jesus? All of these signs accompany that which we believe. Things that are dead do not stay dead about relationships that have been estranged and there can be reconciliation. Does that not point towards Christ? And the very season of spring, although not a full picture, gives us that reminder of new life sprouting up again. New friendships, new encouragement, doing the things that Jesus called us to do. All of these are ways that we point towards Jesus. But remember, all of our life story and all of the good deeds we can do, they are only the finger by which we point towards Christ. It doesn't end with our works because it didn't begin with our works. It begins and ends with Christ, who is the Alpha and Omega. And our faithful part to play is to point towards Jesus in word and in thought and in deed. Because why? He has risen. He has risen indeed. As a church, we have the great opportunity and privilege of reminding ourselves and reminding each other in worship of what Christ did for us. And we do so by word and sacrament. By the word, we are pointed towards the testimony of Jesus Christ. God made flesh and revealing himself. Mark chapter 16 is a very, very clear sign that points towards Christ. It is the testimony of scripture. This is word, and it points us towards Christ. And we also are given the gift of sacraments, of baptism and communion which point us towards Christ. By baptism, we are pointed towards Christ because we are united with him in his death. But because he rose again, we are also united with him in his rising again. And at the table, in communion, we are pointed towards Christ. For our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself instituted this supper when he was with his disciples On the night that he was with them, he fulfilled for them perfectly the full meaning of Passover. That in this supper, Jesus proclaimed to them that he was going to give his body and his blood as a ransom for many. My friends, the table of the Lord's Supper points us towards Christ. And it does so with those Three concepts of remembrance, communion, and hope. For we remember that Christ died for us upon the cross. But we remember that Christ rose again. But communion is not just a memory exercise, though that is important. Communion is about remembering, but also about communion. About remembering that Jesus is here present with us that Christ has called us to his table, and that here we fellowship with our risen Lord as well as with one another. Just as Jesus said, I am the true vine. In me you must abide if you are to bear fruit. Here we come to abide in Christ. If our lives are to bear fruit, to bear the kind of fruit that point towards Jesus. Remembrance, communion, and hope. Because just as death was not the end, but Christ rose again and just as the resurrection was in the end but Christ ascended Christ also gave the promise that he would come again because our signs and pointing will only bring us so far and we need Jesus we need Jesus more than ever to come and return and to build his kingdom here we come around this table in that same hope in remembrance in communion, and in hope of the risen Lord whom we worship this day. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate communion, and all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, into the family of God, are welcome to partake at this table. We'll celebrate communion by intinction this morning, which means that you'll come forward and you'll take a piece of the bread, and these words will be shared with you. This is Christ's body broken for you. Take your piece of bread and dip it into the cup. And these words will be shared with you. This is Christ's blood shed for you. And then partake of the bread and the juice together. There's also at the center station um, a bread which is dairy, wheat, gluten, soy, and nut-free. And so come to the center station for that. We'll celebrate communion by intention, which means we'll come down the center aisle. We'll start with the balcony and the back rows. Coming forward, there will be a station of elders on the right and on the left. Pastor Dustin and I will serve the dairy, wheat, soy, gluten, and nut-free option in the middle. We invite you to come forward, partake of communion, and return along the side aisles to your seats. This we will do together as the family of God.